All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good to have you guys here today. I hope you're doing well. Hope things are going good for you uh, there at home and wherever you're watching from. Uh, hope, hope God has been good to you and working in your life and uh, you see his hand at work through everything that happens. If you belong to the Lord, then you know that all, all of it God is doing to make you a better person, to make you who you are. We are, the Bible says we are co-workers with Christ and he's working on us and we're, we're working with him on us. And uh, that's a beautiful thing because of what we're talking about. We're talking about all in. And uh, we're in 1 John chapter 4. We've been digging into God's love uh, and, and trying to see it from a mountaintop view, from all sides of his love, not just the side that we like. And we're exploring the, the depth and the length and the height and the width of his love. And it's, it's huge. It's a big love. It's a lot of love. It's more love than we'll ever know. Last night in our youth group, uh, we were talking about, um, you know, on a scale of zero to 100, how much do you feel like you know the Lord? And it was an interesting conversation all over the place. But one of our kids said, well, you can't put the number 100 on the Lord because the information and knowledge of the Lord is infinite. And uh, he's right about that. Um, and so the conclusion we had was that we know very little. We know very little about all that God is and his grace and his love and his kingdom and eternity. We just know nothing. We're, we're so close to zero in our understanding of who he is. And so we're trying, at least from the Bible standpoint, to look and understand God's love from a different view, a higher one. And we're going to jump right into this. Uh, we're exploring this gentle love of God, and we're exploring this tough, uh, disciplined love of God, right? These, these two sides of the coin that, that we have to consider when we talk about God and his love for us, for the world, and then how that motivates us and moves us into the world, and how we are to love. How are we to love? Are we just to be a doormat and just let everyone just step all over us and be uh, like that in our love, just accept everything and everything's wonderful and everything's okay. Is that the kind of love that God has for us? And is that the kind of love God wants us to have for the world? Well, that's the big question. What we need is both, we need to understand both sides of God's love. His, his good side, the goodness side of God's love, and then the, the wrathful side of God's love, right? And, and Peter kind of demonstrates this. He demonstrates these two sides of God's love, his gentle love and this tough love of God as well. And, uh, and, and Peter helps us in his example kind of get an idea of how we are to operate in the world in both halves of love, of God's love. Like, like how to be full of grace, but how to know when to stand your ground. So Peter demonstrates this. Let me, let me share some thoughts from Simon Peter, uh, one of the Lord's uh, hand-picked apostles. And uh, Peter shows us this. So in, in 1 Peter, in, the, in, in his letters that he writes to the churches, uh, he encourages believers 
in his letters to endure persecution, to hang in there under the tyrant of leadership of Nero, who was persecuting the Christians, burning them at the stake, going after them, killing them. A lot of really bad things were happening to the Christians it, it, when the church first began. And so Peter is writing to encourage them to endure this. He says, remain faithful under attack. Peter uh, went on to say this, when they hurled insults at Jesus, reflecting back, he said, Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He simply entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so we would say that Jesus loved those who hated him. He trusted his father and he just showed love for the ones that were hating on him. Peter says, if you're persecuted for the sake of Christ, you are blessed. He said to be subject to rulers, to the authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good deed. And so Peter was saying in difficulties and in hardship and in mistreatment even, be ready to love. Be ready to respond in love to those who are mistreating you. To love difficult people. To try hard and get along and show mercy and show grace to those who don't. And that's Peter's Peter's letter to these Christians who are suffering under the hand of Nero. Yet at the same time, the same Peter, when we look at his example, was told by the authorities to stop preaching the, 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 the word of God. Peter went right back out onto the streets and kept on preaching about Jesus when told by the authorities to stop. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, before the Sanhedrin, they said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter now and the other apostles said, we must obey God rather than man. In Acts chapter 4 uh, is the healing of a lame man. And Peter and John are arrested. They are threatened to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Last, uh, a couple Wednesdays ago in our youth group, we were talking about Acts chapter 16, and uh, Paul uh, casts this demon out of this girl who is telling fortunes. She's a fortune teller, and, and, and uh, Paul casts the demon out of her. And so the result of that was that the men who were using her to fortune tell were not going to have a business anymore. Paul just cast the demon out of the business. And so they, they attacked Paul, and they beat him, and they throw Paul and Silas into prison. And at midnight... This is the passage that Paul and Silas are, are singing and they're praising God from in prison. An earthquake happens. It shakes the whole place. The doors swing open. The chains fall off of Paul and Silas. And the guard is about to kill himself because he thinks 
that prisoners have escaped and he's going to die anyway. And Paul says, don't kill yourself. Don't do it. We're all here. Nobody's left. And so the jailer gives his life to Christ. He takes Paul home. He cleans Paul up. He bandages his wounds. He feeds him dinner. And he's baptized into Jesus. In the morning, the magistrates come now to get Paul uh, they send officers to the jailer, and they, what they want the, the, the jailer to do is to release Paul and to say, sorry, this has just been a, a little misunderstanding, and uh, let them go in peace, like, you're free to leave. And Paul says, I don't think so. I don't think so. In, uh, in this passage in verse 37 in Acts 16, here's what Paul said. Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison, and now do they want to get rid of us so quietly? No, no, no. Let them come themselves and escort us out. In other words, Paul wasn't going to be a doormat. Paul wasn't going to be uh, just lay down and just accept everything that happened to him. Paul is like showing us an example of boldness and courageousness. And Paul is showing us that at times we must take a stand. In God's love, there is a time to take a stand. When King Nebuchadnezzar, way back in the Old Testament, made his golden statue and he commanded all of his kingdom to bow down and worship it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, we're not going to worship your statue. When the king made an edict for everyone to pray to him and him only, Daniel said, no, I'm not going to do it. The Hebrew midwives in the time of Moses disobeyed a direct order from Pharaoh to kill all the baby boys. And remember, they put little Moses in a basket. In Joshua 2, Rahab disobeyed a command from the king of Jericho and hid the Israelite spies. Obadiah in the Old Testament hid 100 of God's men from Queen Jezebel, defying the queen's orders. They were some bad dudes, these Old Testament heroes of the faith, stood up against the authorities and evil. They, they were willing then to die for their faith. They were willing to pay whatever consequences might come their way, but they were not going to give in. They were not going to be a doormat. In the scope and umbrella of God's love, they were going to stand for truth. See, love is kind. Love is forgiving. Love is thoughtful. Love is everything that 1 Corinthians 13 says. But love also isn't afraid to stand up for the Lord, to speak against the evils of the world, the slaughtering of innocent, injustice, hatred, and discrimination. In Hebrews 11, it's filled with Christians Old Testament, New Testament, people who took a stand. You got to read Hebrews 11. They were persecuted. They were tortured. They were executed for their faith in God. They were living by faith, the Bible says, when they died. 
to the very last breath. They had their minds set on a promised land that is not of this world, a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, Hebrews 11 says, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Right? Not of this world. And verse 38 ought to inspire us to greatness, to be faithful to the bitter end. And it seems, as you look at what's going on in our world today, we are closer to the second coming of Jesus than we have ever been. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 38 says this, the, about these, these believers who stood their ground and said no to the evil of the world, the world the world was not worthy of them. The world was not worthy of these faithful believers. They learned when to love with grace and when to stand firm in the truth. And they were not afraid to suffer for Jesus. They got it. They understood it very clearly that we will either cave into man and then have to answer to God, or we will stand against sinful man and be rewarded by God. And they chose wisely, these heroes of our faith. They had the right approach. They had the right attitude. They had the right mindset. Like Daniel, they trusted God, and God saved him from the lion's mouths. And like John the Baptist, who spoke boldly for the truth of God, and God was with him in his persecution. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, our God is able to rescue us from the furnace, but even if he chooses not to, we want you to know, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we will worship the Lord our God. We will not worship you. We will not bow down to you or your statue. You love for things of God, and love for the truths of God trumps the ways of this world every time, every time. We will not compromise our faith, we will not sell out, and we will not deny the truths of Jesus. No matter what you do to us, we will not. And as Solomon said, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. There's a time to stand. There's a time to love with grace and mercy and truth. We're, we don't have any problem doing that. Most Christians are really good about taking it, at least in some ways. The love of God, the gracious, merciful, forgiving love of God, and the love of God is powerful and wrathful and fearful and full of discipline as well. That is not something you're going to hear from most pulpits. Most preachers are not going to talk about the side of God that isn't as pretty as the one where he leaves the 99 to get the one. See, we all want to sing about that. We all want to embrace that. We all want to ooh and goo about that. But nobody really wants to go through the fire to be refined and to be more like Jesus. And that's what we need more than anything else. Back to our passage. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another. We've read that a couple times. 
Love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, this is perfect love, right? This is perfect love. Notice it originates in God. Notice that he is love and that the love comes from him. This is where it's coming from. It's coming from God. If there's any love in us at all, it has come from God. And if we are truly born again, if we're truly born of God and born again, then we will love one another. We will love one another with God's love and all of his love, the fullness of it. And we will appreciate that true repentance and conviction leads to salvation. That through the pain, we find healing. Through the blood of Jesus, we find healing. Through a surgical procedure, we find healing. And through discipline and correction of God, we find purity and perfection and completeness. See, mature believers welcome God's correction and his rebuking and his conviction. We welcome that. I want to share with you in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, go there with me in your Bibles. Uh, a couple things I want to show you because Paul says some things to the Corinthians that is right in line with what we're talking about here today. Uh, so we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Go there in your Bible, if you would. And I want to read some sections. There's some longer sections I want to read out of this, 6 and 7. Chapters uh, 6 and 7. Let me get that up there for you. 2 Corinthians 6 and 7. Here we go. Verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Okay, don't, don't be connected to the unbelievers. Especially don't marry them. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? See the two differences? Righteousness, wickedness, two different kinds of people. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and that of idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will live with them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Come away from the world. Do not go along with the things of the world. Be different, Paul, uh, uh, Paul is saying here. Verse 1, chapter 7. Therefore... We have these, since, uh, therefore, uh, we have these promises, dear friends. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Paul's saying, stay away from this stuff. Don't let the things of the world contaminate you. You walk with God. You stand up with God. You stand for the things of God. And don't let the world draw you in. Don't be contaminated by the things of the world. Don't be intertwined, mixed together with them. Down in chapter 7, verse 8, even if I caused you, now check this out, Paul says, even if I caused you sorrow, Paul's going to talk about some pain that he inflicted on them in his last letter. 
and, and his feelings about this. Check this out. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Paul's saying, look, if God corrects you and it hurts you and you're sorry and you're mad and you're, this is for your good. If, if the world does that to you, it's useless. It's not going to do you any eternal good. But if God is doing this spiritually in your life, it is for your good. No matter what happens to you, God can use that to help refine us, make us better. See what this godly sorrow has produced. Check it out. In you, what earnestness, what eagerness, and clear, your, and, uh, clear yourselves, what in, indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or the injured uh, party, but rather before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you is true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be sure, uh, true as well. And this affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him in fear, with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Paul is, Paul is excited for this, the Corinthians because, because his correction and his discipline in his, probably in the first Corinthian letter led to repentance and salvation. And so Paul, Paul is demonstrating with the church in Corinth what God is trying to help us understand, and that is that, that the, the, the tough side of God is better for us than the good side of God. We need the good side, but we also need the, the tough side. The, this love of God, is, it's a love that, that is founded and supported uh, in action. We see Paul taking action in this. He's living out what God is saying to us, what God's word says to us. If it doesn't like impact us, if there's no like outward expression of this, if it doesn't impact us and move us toward God, then it's probably not God's love. See, God's correction moves us to him. God's discipline moves us to him. God's love and grace for us should move us to him. If it doesn't move us to him, then it's probably not from him. Whether it's his grace and mercy or his discipline. It's all for our good because we know that God is working all things for our good. That's what he's trying to do in you. 
He's trying to do me. In verses 7 and 8, he says, And if we know that, this great love, that we are born of God, and we know God. If we understand this fullness of his love, then we are born of him. Verse 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as, look at the word, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For my sins. God actively showed his love. He showed his love. How? Jesus. He sent his son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, there's nothing passive about Jesus being an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Some translations say a propitiation. The propitiation for our sins. It means to appease the wrath of the one who was offended. And in this case, we our sin offends God. So we've offended God. We have to appease God. That's what we have to do. We have to, we have to make it right. We've got to get it right with God. The Greek word is halasmon, and it means it has to do with an angry God, to satisfy the payment required of God who has been offended. There's a payment that must be paid. That atonement, that atonement was demanded for the sins of mankind, that some blood had to be spilled. That's what the entire Old Testament is about, with all the blood of the bulls and the goats, was all about the fact that at some point in the future, the, the perfect Lamb of God would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. This is what atonement is all about, the Day of Atonement where the sins of the people would be dealt with. What God was doing through Israel, all through Old Testament history, was pointing to the fact that his son might, would come one day and he would be the perfect sacrifice once and for all. That gap between man and God, this gap that was filled with our sin, required of the blood of a perfect sacrifice, which is why none of us could do it. Because we are all sinful creatures. God was not happy with our rebellion. Those he made in his image brought, brought on themselves the separation and death. Blood was demanded. Remember Ezekiel? He said last week, the soul who sins must die. And therefore, I should die. I have to pay the penalty for my sin. And the penalty for my sin against God is eternal separation in hell. Someone had to pay this price. So in your place, Jesus took God's wrath, your sin that, that offended God, he took it on himself, and he nails our sin to the cross. And by accepting his death in our place and surrendering to Jesus, being immersed into Christ, receiving forgiveness of your sin, the washing and the cleansing of your sin, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, you can be born again. You can pass from death into life because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for you and for me. Let the atoning blood of Jesus save you Today, if you have never accepted Christ as Lord, do it. 
And the result of this atoning sacrifice is that we have a way back then to God. We can come back into his presence, restoration and salvation. Even now, the day of salvation is for you. It's for you. It's here. This ultimate love, this ultimate love of God in action, the perfect Son of God came and died for you and me, sinners, us sinners. And this is what makes his love so amazing. And this is what makes his love, as we try to live it out in the world, so amazingly difficult. He did the impossible. He loved us in our most unworthy state. While we were still nasty and dirty and spiritually bankrupt, still in our sin, covered in spiritual rebellion toward him, Jesus loved us. He loved us with the full expression of his love. And he calls us then to go out into the world and to love the world back to him, to, to reconcile souls back to the creator where they have fallen from and, and been separated from. Through the blood and the death of Jesus and through conviction and repentance and clear understanding that we are completely unworthy. We are unworthy of the Son of God. We are completely unworthy. But God and God alone, oh, loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever believes in Jesus would not perish, but have eternal life. You and I need Jesus more than we will ever know. He died for you, and he died for for me. And John goes on to say, verse 11, dear friends, the last two verses, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This true, true test of God, this true, true test of God alive in us is his love, is if we love one another with his love, if we love in the world with his love, if we accept his love, if we walk in his love with the full extent of his love, the whole truth of his love, the whole truth, the feel-good love of God that draws us to himself and the surgical, painful, inflicting side of God that cleans us up. His love lavished that provides comfort and peace and salvation and hope and at the very same time, correction and discipline and refining. At the end of verse 12, you see it. God lived in us and, and he's alive in us and, and he's, he's being made complete in us. God is making us complete in him. He's completing us. John's letter, John's goal in this letter is victory, is that we will have victory in Jesus. That's, that's really his ultimate goal, that we would know God, that we would know Jesus, that we would resist evil, that we would see the evil around, that we would love like God loves, we'd understand all of his love, right? 
His goal is that we would have victory in us. And in our lives, we, we face highs and lows, right? The birth of a baby, the death of a family member or a friend. Uh, you're hired, you're fired. Uh, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, right? We experience the highs and lows of life. It's all part of this life in a broken world where we all need a savior. We need a savior who will rescue me from this body of death, Paul said. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> See, it's in Jesus. It's in Jesus where we find the greatest victory ever. Let me remind you today, as we wrap this up, of the greatest day of your life. It either has already happened for you, or it could happen for you any day. Most of us think that the greatest day in our life is going to be that day when we walk into heaven. We, we, we enter heaven, right? And that incredible sense of safety and security and peace and rest and healing. And John's going to talk about that in verse uh, chapter 5 when he's, when he's going to say these words. That you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. That's John's goal for us. So we, we, we'd understand this victory and we'd know it. Then, someday in the future, that we would walk into heaven and, and experience this eternal life. But notice what John says. He says that you may know that you have eternal life. Like, you already have it. Even here on the earth, you already have eternal life. That we walk now in Jesus, in all of his fullness. That the greatest day of your life if you're a Christian, has already happened for you when you gave your life to Jesus. That when he comes the second time, he's going to seal the deal. He's going to finish the deal. And until then, he's still working on you and on me to complete us, to perfect us that our obedience would be complete, that our love would be complete, that our faith would be complete. And that although there are real threats to our walk in Christ on this earth, powerful forces coming up against us and the kingdom of God, God has given you all that you need to stand. And eternal life is already ours. And the victory is yours in Jesus. If we will walk with him, with him, all in. All in. Woo! That's a lot, isn't it? We're going to wrap up this chapter 4 and move on to chapter 5 in the next few weeks. But that was a lot on love and God's encouragement. John's encouragement to the believers who are spread out all over Ephesus is, hey, be all in. Be all in with God. Explore his love. Walk in his love. Stand for the truth. And don't let anything shake you. God bless you guys. Have an amazing day today and a great week. We'll see you later.